Open the podcast bay door as hell. Welcome to episode 73 of Welcome to Geek Town. I'm your host, Kurt Onstead. I've been a proud geek all my life, being into role-playing games, board games, sci-fi, fantasy, and especially superheroes and comics. And I want to help others join me in those pursuits. But I've found that sometimes people can get overwhelmed or feel left out because they don't already have what some consider the requisite knowledge to be considered a fan. And that's where Welcome to Geek Town comes in. Here, you can ask your questions without feeling like a gatekeeper is calling you out for not yet being fully versed in every aspect of your new interest. A quick shout out to Eva Webb, creator and host of the Titular Characters podcast, who invited me on her show. We started out by talking about comic book costumes, but let the conversation just take us where it would, and ended up discussing a number of various comic-related topics. Do a search for titular characters on your podcast app or at YouTube and check out episode 6 for that conversation. And take a listen to the others as well, as Eva is a fun and informed interviewer. My inbox has been particularly empty of late, so I don't have a listener question that I feel like I can properly answer at this time, although I have some feelers out to talk to people necessary to answer some other questions. Instead, I'm going to tackle a very basic topic that people may or may not be curious about, and that's how does a comic book get made? I'm going to be focusing on the big two, Marvel and DC, as I usually do, and talk about what the role of each person in the chain is. Let's get started, shall we? So, when a mommy comic and a daddy comic love each other very much... Okay. Now that I've gotten the obvious joke out of the way, let's really begin. At the top is the editor. Their basic job is to make sure all of their books go out on time and meet a certain level of quality in order to maximize sales. A few months ago, I was involved in a freeform role-playing type project run by longtime Marvel editor Tom Bervort. The entire game is available on Tom's blog, and I'll include a link in the show notes at the Welcome to Geek Town website. So, I got a small taste of some of the challenges they face in this process, and let me tell you, it's more difficult than you may think. As Tom noted in his wrap-up post on this game, and something he tells all of the incoming editors at Marvel, quote, Creators get credit, editors get the blame. In addition to the basic logistical side of things that keep the books running on time, the editor will hire and fire creative personnel. But how involved they are in the actual storytelling itself varies by the individual editor. Some will dictate a tone or general direction that the book will take, or get even more involved, while others take as much of a hands-off approach as they can, 
giving the writer-artist team free reign to tell the stories they want to. At Marvel and DC, they're also responsible for approving guest star appearances of the characters in their stable, in order to make sure there are no contradictions between titles or oversaturation of certain characters. For instance, the Spider-Man editor would generally be in charge of Peter Parker, his major villains, and his supporting cast. Above the editor can be an executive editor, then the editor-in-chief. An executive editor will be in charge of a slate of titles, usually related to one another in some way. For instance, Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, and the Avengers. While the editor-in-chief is the top dog in the editorial department for the entire publishing line. Currently, the editor-in-chief at Marvel is C.B. Sobolski, and at DC, that role is taken by Marie Javins. The next creator we'll look at is the writer. As I've talked about in some previous episodes, writers can provide anything from a very basic plot to a full script, describing the scene panel by panel, including dialogue. As I mentioned in my Stan Lee tribute episode, number 18, when Stan was writing and editing nearly the entire output of the company, his plots were incredibly loose, to the point where some of those early artists feel they should be given more credit than they have received. I don't think any writers today are this freeform with their scripts, but there's still a wide range of styles. This depends mostly on the general preferences of the writer, though this can be influenced by the relationship between the writer and their artist. Some writers always work Marvel style, with a looser script, while others only write full scripts, or somewhere in between those two extremes, but most writers I've talked to vary their style depending on how well they know and trust the artist they're currently working with. A rookie artist may get full panel descriptions, while an artist that has worked with a writer for many years may be given more leeway to decide the best layout for the page. In any case, the writer will often be at least somewhat involved both before and after the artwork is done. Even if the script was written with full dialogue and captions provided beforehand, it's not uncommon for a writer to make changes after seeing the artwork return, in order to either clear up anything the writer thinks wasn't made apparent by the art, or to remove any dialogue or captions they feel was made redundant or unnecessary. Obviously, in a Marvel-style script, this is when basically all the writing that will be seen on the page will be written out. Most of the time, this is done by the same person who wrote the plot, but other times you will see separate credits for plot and dialogue. Now, what is a comic book without art? Well, just a book. So, let's talk about the artists. This is usually broken down by penciler and inker, so we'll start there and look at some exceptions later. Comic books obviously predate computers, so art was originally done on paper, and in many cases is still done this way. In order to give the artists as much opportunity to get things exactly the way they wanted, comics would start with pencil art. 
Assuming this wasn't dictated by the writer, the penciler is often compared to the director of a film, as they decide much of the pacing, by determining the size and number of panels per page, and the layout of each panel, i.e. where the camera is facing and who or what it is focused on. Once the penciler is satisfied, the art is sent along to the inker. Some pencilers like to ink their own work as much as possible, while others prefer having someone else embellish their work. Inkers will go over the pencil art with, well, ink. They add weight to the line art, as well as cross-hatching and other techniques to add depth and shadow. If you've seen the movie Chasing Amy, you may have heard the accusation of inkers just being tracers, but this is definitely not the case. At the Welcome to Geek Town website, I'll have a few examples of the same pencil art worked on by different inkers, so you can see how their own style will influence the look of the page. Like writers, pencilers can work very loose or incredibly tight. If you see a credit for breakdowns in a comic, that means that the artist in question decided the page and panel layouts, but had very little to do with the look of the book beyond that. As I mentioned in episode 52, Keith Giffen, an accomplished writer and artist, did this on the weekly book by DC titled 52. Due to the schedule, it was impossible for one artist to do full pencil art for every issue, so these breakdowns helped provide a consistent tone for the book, despite the many artists involved. When one artist is credited for breakdowns, the next artist in the chain is usually given the title of finisher, which can be a combination of pencil and ink work, or just further pencils. On the opposite end of this extreme, with the advent of computer scans, some books have skipped over the inker entirely, going straight from pencils to colors. This was most prevalent in the mid to late 90s, as computer coloring first came into vogue at the big two, but personally, I think most comic book art works best with an inker involved, and the fact that fewer and fewer books these days go straight from pencils to colorist seems to imply that many people agree with me. Speaking of the colorist, let's talk about them next. Their job is fairly obvious from the name, they add colors. In the old days, this involved cutting out pieces of translucent material that could add red, yellow, or blue to the page in varying levels. Anything less than 100% of a color was handled by dots or lines of that hue spread out in a set pattern, and by combining them, you could create the illusion of different colors. Even if you're a recent comic book reader, you've probably seen pictures of old art or reproductions of that effect, like on Lichtenstein prints. This printing process is one of the reasons that superhero and supervillain costumes all started using basic primary and secondary colors. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple. As they were the ones that could be most consistently depicted on the page. With this older process, it was also fairly common for the color sheets to get slightly offset from the inked art, 
causing colors on the finished page to not quite match up, an error that's called being off-register. For this, and a number of other reasons, computer coloring came into vogue in the early 90s and these days is now the norm rather than the exception. For a little of that history, check out the first part of my interview with Evan Skolnick in episode 54. This modern technology allows for not only a fuller range of colors and more accurate registers, but also more smooth gradients and effects that give a much more sculpted look to the characters. This also came with a price, however, in this case, a literal one. Thicker paper was needed to be able to absorb all of the ink involved in these more colorful images, which was one of the factors in prices jumping from under $2 an issue up to $3 or $4 for the same size comic. Speaking of size, a little digression is the fact that comics have been shrinking. From the golden age to current comics, the width of a typical book thinned from seven and three quarters inches down to six and seven eighths inches, which is why Golden Age, Silver Age, and current bags and boards for storing comics are differently sized. The height has stayed pretty consistent, but some printers shave a few millimeters off the top, which you can usually notice if you grab a mix of comics from the past 20 years or so and stack them up. This helps reduce costs while not making an incredibly noticeable difference to readers. When working in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of books being printed each month by each company, those little differences can eventually make a big difference in their bottom line. Getting back to the main topic, we have one last creator involved, the letterer. Like the colorist, the letterer's job has been greatly changed by the advent of computer programs, but the basic idea is still the same. The letterer decides where to place the word balloons, captions, and some of the sound effects, although larger sound effects usually originate with the penciler. The letterer has to make sure that the dialogue is placed in such a way that the reader will easily follow the correct order and at the same time be sure not to cover up the important bits of the art. It is an art form in and of itself, although probably the one that gets the least attention because if it's done correctly, it's nearly invisible. In the old days, letterers literally wrote all the dialogue out by hand and cut out the balloons to be pasted onto the artboards. Modern letterers usually work with computer files, but may print out their work to be pasted on, depending on the book. In addition to their standard work, the big letterers also create their own fonts that give them their own unique style. These days, any character that has a unique way of speaking, or some that come from faraway lands, will have their own dedicated font. Mephisto, one of Marvel's analogs for the devil, for instance, now always speaks with word balloons that are filled with a red, flowing script that evokes blood and ritual circles, while Thor's speech is often written in a blocky style that reminds the reader of Norse runes. Currently, the order I highlighted the various creators in 
is the main order that these people are brought into the process. Originally, the letterer and colorist's order were switched. Although, obviously, the editor stays involved all the way through, and often the writer and penciler will also be able to provide input after their original contribution in order to make sure the final product meets their original vision. Also, with email, FTP, and other electronic means of transferring and sharing files, multiple creators can be working on the same piece at once, with the letterer creating a layer in Photoshop and the coloring being on a separate layer or layers, and then merging these together later. Once the editor approves the final pages, they are then sent off to the printer. The printer sends them to the distributor, or distributors, then they finally go to the stores, where you and I can find them on the shelf. And that's the basics of how a comic is created. While I enjoyed discussing this, I really would prefer to be answering more specific questions from you. So please, send those in, or any comments on the show in general, via email to welcometogeektown, all spelled out, at gmail.com. Or you can go to welcome to the number two in this case, geektown.com, and click the Submit a Question link if you'd prefer to remain anonymous. Other contact options include facebook.com slash welcome to geektown or twitter at geektownpodcast. Also, if you'd like to support the show directly, come join the Patreon at patreon.com slash welcome to geektown for just a dollar per month to get access to full scripts of the shows, outtakes, and a monthly shoutout. You can also help the show grow by subscribing and giving a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts to join the Geek Town City Council, which helps other people find the show, so we can all tell them, Welcome to Geek Town, population, us. Welcome to Geek Town is written, narrated, edited, and produced by me, Kurt Onstead. Theme music is by Aaron Lovitz, logo art by Archie Santana. All other sound clips are the copyrighted material of their respective owners, and no infringement is intended, falling under fair use.